Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with Andrew Siegfrieds of ASIG Design. Established in 2010, ASIG Design is a multidisciplinary architectural design firm specializing in interior design of restaurants and coffee shops. We talk about his foray into the architectural and design space in China, the cost of construction in China versus what it is in the West, how designing for China combines all of owner, client, and consumer, and how selfies, yes, selfies, and being Instagram worthy have made a tremendous impact on how Andrew designs spaces today. Enjoy. I would say the single biggest thing is the notion of the selfie. It sounds crazy, but you do. Like if you could imagine how powerful Instagram has been for certain places, you know, let's maybe even just the tourism industry. There's a fair amount of tourist locations that are driven by that amazing photo. China is that to a much higher degree. And I think that's the single biggest thing that I've seen change over the last five years as far as how I design and how my clients want their restaurant or bar or coffee shop design is how Instagram movie is it. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Yep. Thanks for having me, Todd. I look forward to it. As usual, a little get to know. Tell us how you ended up in China. How long you been there? Why'd you go there? What have you been doing there? Well, I'm actually currently not there, um, but I do go back and forth quite a bit. Um, I went there in 2007 or 2006. I can't remember exactly. I actually went there originally just to travel. It was like the American version of a gap year. Wanted to just go see the world, um, decided on Asia, went over there. And I would say within about four months, six months, I realized that uh, this is somewhere I didn't only want to be for one year, possibly longer. Um, that was actually right, right at the 2008 recession. And after I got there, I was uh, initially teaching English. And decided I don't like teaching, but I do really like China. I fell in love with the country and decided I'm going to pursue, you know, my career, which is what I studied architecture and quickly discovered that there's a lot of opportunity. And that certainly didn't at that time plan on staying for 12 years, which I ended up did stay for. But I think all of our stories are very similar in that sense where uh, one thing leads to another. And then 10 years later, you're like, oh, wow, I've been here for 10 years. Yeah. How did you meet Greg? Greg Turner was the one who uh, actually introduced us and recommended you for the show. How do you know Greg? We play hockey together. So in Shanghai, um, as you might know, I'm not sure if you do, but there's a, actually a really big community of hockey players, mostly expats. You know, there's some some Japanese and some Chinese and some Taiwanese mixed in. But for the most part, it's Canadian and American. 
I think when you're a foreigner in a, in a situation like that, you all kind of get really close really fast. It's like, a, uh, it's like your bubble. Um, you know, people go to China and they live in this bubble for their whole entire time there. And others kind of break out and they get, you know, lots of Chinese culture. They have Chinese friends and things like that. But during that hockey time, that was our time. That was our time to be in a bubble and kind of just not forget where we came from. And we just had fun, play sports and just socialize, drink, party, all those things. So was, uh, that, that was how I met Greg. Sounds like classic beer league hockey just in China. It really is. And that's where Jim Dunn's also where I met him as well. Yeah, I can't believe I lived in Shanghai all that time and didn't get into hockey. I played a lot of softball. Uh, so I was I was always playing ball really? out in Pudong. Yeah, big, big softball. What team were you on? Because I played softball too. <laughs> I was on the Suns. Oh, really? Yeah. Got it. I was a um, first the Bulls and then the Boozers. Oh, uh, yeah. Boozers. Yeah. Yeah. I was a boozer. Yeah, it was um, it, w- it was a lot of fun. But I, I, I'm surprised that I, I mean, I didn't really have gear. That was the big thing. I mean, baseball, you know, grab a glove and some shoes and you're good to go. Um, right. But, you know, right. hockey, hockey was a was a larger investment uh, and I did not have my gear. So as someone who studied architecture and design in the West, what made you feel as though China was an interesting space to explore within that field? Well, it was interesting. When I first went to China, I actually didn't realize that it was in space for architecture. You know, one of the reasons when I went to China, um, even though I was going there to travel and to, you know, explore from a, a personal the reason why is because once I got there, I realized, you know, the, the opportunities in architecture and the, I guess, freedom, freedom of, of design and expression. I wouldn't call myself a, cre- a, a pure creative. But, you know, it, when you're in China and the amount of development that's happening, you know, as a, as a Western person or as a non-Chinese educated person, you get into the space and you quickly realize that you get put on almost like a like a pedestal, you know, not from a, like a sociocultural standpoint, but from a design standpoint. And I realized that once I got into architecture, that the opportunity that I had as a professional was much, much greater than it would have been, say, if I would have stayed home in the U.S. Um, and that's because, you know, you work for a Chinese company or even a Western company, you become the designer. So I was doing things that were way beyond the years that I'd be doing them in the U.S. In the U.S., in architecture, you graduate from school and you end up, you know, getting into a company and you basically do boring drafting for years when you first start your career. It's almost like a right to passage or whatever when before you start designing. But in China, you immediately get thrust into this position, and it would like the work at that time was amazing. So before I went, I didn't know much about architecture because at that time there wasn't really blogs and things. Um, nowadays, you can you know Pinterest or you know there's design blogs everywhere. It just shows and it exemplifies all that's going on in China. But back then, it, it wasn't. Originally, I went to China just because I thought. You know, it was in a more of a general kind of macroeconomic superpower back then. You know, it was China and India. I was attracted to it for that reason and went there and only then discovered it, you know, the architectural opportunities. At a high level, what are the main differences between modern architecture and design in China and then the same modern architecture and design in the West today? Where do these differences stem from? Who is taking cues from whom? Uh, you know, we can even talk a little bit about, you know, feng shui or, you know, materials mm-hmm. design or even considerations as far as weather, natural disasters, you know, or even what types of insurance impacts are there? If you could 
just kind of dive into all that for me. Well, I would say it's the difference between the two from my perspective is kind of two areas. Um, number one is cost. It's the cost of construction. The cost of getting in the West is much, much higher. So design as a result tends to be a lot more conservative. So when you have an owner here wanting to do something, you know, that consideration is deeply discussed. Um, and oftentimes, you, you know, you do a design in the West and it goes through value engineering, which means you finish the design, the owner gives it to a contractor to get an estimate and then they get the bill back or the estimate for the bill. Oh, we got to change things. So you go back and you, you know, value engineer, you basically change things, simplify things. So it doesn't cost much in China because the labor is lower. It actually gives a lot more design freedom to designers and architects like me, you know, even, even small details and things like soffits and things like that in interiors, where it is in the West, you just know, simplify, make it flat in China. It's like, how can we make this even more interesting? Because, you know, the guy getting on the ladder is getting paid a 10th what he has in the West, we can, we can put him through that. We can get him to do something amazing. And therefore the space will be that much more amazing. I would say that's one major, major factor that I'm seeing that I've certainly seen over the years. Um, another factor is a mixture of owner, client, and, and consumer drive for wanting something new and different. Now, I don't know exactly how this relates to other industries, but the general Chinese consumer is always seeking something completely new and something completely different. And I think that tenants or owners say, you know, my business is restaurant, um, restaurant, coffee, bar, my clients, and as well as our property managers often push as hard as they can to do something completely new and different because what they really want is to drive the consumers who are also so new experience hungry to come to their venue and spend money. And I don't think that's the case in the West. Um, the West is, is far more driven by um, efficiencies, say things like service or just general brand recognition. And it's less about kind of pushing people through the doors via an interesting space, um, which is obviously amazing for my business. It's kind of what's kept me busy over the years in China is that kind of constant drive to like want to innovate, um, even to the point where sometimes it's exhausting. You know, there, there are times when I feel like I do a perfectly good design, like beautiful, you know, well-detailed, well-designed and my clients and even their property managers still push back and they say, we want something even more amazing, even more different, something that we've never seen. And I think a lot of it's actually driven by social media. Um, you know, the Chinese follow WeChat and, and, and Xiaohongshu, the, 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 I don't even know what the English name is, Red Book, I guess. Little Red Book. Yeah, little red book, the the Instagram version of that, mm -hmm. uh, China's Instagram version, and just you know, where are people going? How can we go there next? And that's really what people like, like owners of these these venues are after. Right. Well, I mean, that kind of leads into the next question I wanted to ask, which was about the cutting edge trends in in the space in design space. It's a I don't know how to say this right because I'm talking about space both as a vertical and as the physical, but uh, right. trends in the space in China today. And where's the, where's this field going? Uh, where do you think it's going to be going in the next five to 10 years? That's a really good question. Um, I honestly believe that no one can predict this. The, the amount of change that I've seen in the last five to 10 years in the space that I'm in, which is hospitality has been immense. Um, I think, I think, you know, five or 10 years ago, there was still a lot of people just really trying to figure out 
how to match their brand <laughs> to the design and the space that they create. Um, whereas now um, they're well beyond that. In just a short period of time, they've changed so quickly. Yeah, I would say five or ten years ago, you know, there there were arguably brands and say restaurants and coffee shops that were making good money, but they didn't even really even have a brand. So they were certainly struggling with how do I make my space match my brand and how do I tell that story to the consumer? I don't think that's the case at all today. Um, like in the last year or two, so certainly. Um, so the idea that things have shifted so quickly from how do I tell my brand story in my space to now, what can I do that is so memorable that anybody who walks foot into my restaurant or bar or coffee shop will never forget me. The, the change has been immense. And to, to be honest, the next five or 10 years, it's really hard to say. I mean, we could be in a robotic world that drives people from, you know, the, the entrance to their seats and kind of gives them a massage on the way. I mean, who knows? Possibilities are endless, but I think the, the way things are trending, I think we're going to see something coming out of China, at least in my industry, in my space, that certainly goes above and beyond anywhere else in the world just because of how this industry is changing it's on on this upward trend that it has been going for the last 10 years what sort of considerations around human behavior in china do you have to take into account and i'm thinking there's quite a bit and it's going to be different than the west you know both from a developer or architect's uh, point of view. You know, when you're envisioning or starting to at least sculpt out in your brain what a new building or set of buildings is going to look like. Consumer behavior is certainly something that's always changing in China. I think that's been certainly the most exciting part of my business and my interactions with my clients. It's really about kind of getting out there and kind of just observing and watching people the way they interact in in, in restaurants in hospitality. But I would say the single biggest thing is the notion of the selfie. <laughs> um, it sounds crazy, but you do. Like if you could imagine how powerful Instagram has been for certain places, you know, let's maybe even just the tourist tourism industry. I don't know this. I would just assume that uh, there's a fair amount of tourist locations now that are driven by that amazing photo. China is that to a much higher degree. And I think that's the single biggest thing that I've seen change over the last five years as far as how I design and how my clients want their restaurant or bar or coffee shop designed is how Instagram worthy is it. If it's highly Instagrammable, that's a success. Yeah, they always tell me I want a Wang Hong Dian, you know, which is like viral. Like, I don't care what this thing does. It needs to be viral because surprisingly, that really does drive a lot of traffic. So for me, it's almost like less like behavior, but more like how many views can you put in a space that drives people to want to take their own photos with the backdrop <laughs> that you've designed? Um, this is a really interesting example. Uh, about a year ago, I finished a project for actually a, a pretty large developer. The, the project was with a, a client that had a space in a shopping mall, but the large developer was really pushing us to create a really interesting storefront. And what ended up happening is they asked us to reserve for them about 25% of the storefront and make it something as unique and crazy as we could possibly think of. And that was their selfie corner. So it was really geared towards passersby stopping 
and taking a photo of himself in front of this amazing backdrop. So how do you make a backdrop that not only is so attractive that people want to take a photo of it, but then it also links to your brand. And it's interesting because they were pushing for that. The, the property manager was pushing for that. And the client, my client was like, well, okay, yeah, I like the idea, but I got to pay for it. So most recently, there's actually been a kind of a push and pull between tenants and how much money or their idea of what their storefront should be and the property manager itself. Yeah, it's um, it just has to be such an interesting place to be doing that. I mean, tell us, do you know the the story with the uh, with the 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 eye in the sky, the the thread the needle building in Shanghai, and that you know, and can you talk to a little bit about the original shape of that hole in the building and why they had to change it? The building, I believe, what you're talking about is what we often refer to as a bottle opener. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I don't know too much about the the details or the, the the actual story, but I understood that at some point it was a circle, and that the Pudong government, well, the Shanghai government, but the Pudong um, Development uh, Authority actually decided against the circle because it represented the Japanese flag. Yeah, and you know, as we know, that um, the Chinese and the Japanese are not the best of friends. Yeah, so I had heard that they then pushed the architect to change it to something else, and that's why it now is a. Uh, a square versus a circle. Yeah. So let's not for our listeners, like say that we are either experts or that that is actual truth, right. but that was, and has been at least for both of us, the prevailing understanding of, uh, that it was originally designed to have a circle, uh, and then, uh, became a square later just to avoid that situation. Right. Um, it, so many, so many buildings, so many iconic buildings, so many, I would say caricature type buildings buildings that like the the pearl tower mm -hmm. in shanghai off the bund that just seem a little out of place but then when you have a lot of kind of odd structures then maybe it isn't out of place um it is really a place where everything is on the table is it not it certainly is i think this also kind of tells a little bit about the story of how you know china's government approaches development, which is really interesting. You know, I, I remember you discussing this with, with um, Jim Dunn as well about the things you have as personal freedoms in China, where, you know, the, the person who's, you know, people who've never been to China often think that, well, it's a communist country. You don't have any rights. You can't do much, but it's actually completely untrue, right? You feel so free as an individual, but then in business, it's the same. The government typically leaves you alone with you know, how you want to run your business and how you want to make money until you get big. Because as soon as you get big, they want to make sure that you're, you know, paying taxes and kind of doing some other things that you could have influence over other people for. Um, but general development is, is similar from what I've seen. Local governments, I'm not an expert on this, but local governments oftentimes and local authorities oftentimes kind of gives an open book to developers to do something amazing. Um, they typically stay out of, you know, the, the fine details of how this should look or how this should feel and say, just make it amazing, make it successful, and then pay your taxes <laughs> or development fees or whatever it is. And I think what that does is it gives developers truly this opportunity to, to really go out and make something amazing. You know, they don't have to 
explain or get approval from the neighbors like we do in the West. Um, I think we all know the the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. There's a lot of that in the West. And I think that's a big factor for the way buildings are designed and developed in the West. Whereas when you do a development, you have to get a lot of approvals from everyone in, you know, if it's a residential, you know, it's if it's a house, it's got to be your neighbors. If it's a kind of more of a commercial or a community, you know, development or project, you have to get it approved by the city. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's uh, the public itself can come in, see the design and give an opinion on it. And a lot of times those things stop projects. It's not like that in China. China, you know, one of the great things that I think that the government does in a situation like this is they just simply say, go ahead. Of course, if it's impeding on somebody heavily, we'll listen to their complaints. But for the most part, we're not going to do a meeting and get everyone's opinion. And then it either goes or it doesn't go. We're going to say, you go make it amazing, make it the best you can make it and compete. You know, like if you believe that designing an amazing space or designing an, an amazing building will help you compete, then do it. And you've got, you've got a, a clear pathway to do so. Self-promotion time, buddy. Uh, introduce some of the work that ASIG does uh, within the design and architecture space. So ASIG Design, when I first started, I actually, um, this was probably maybe year three when I when I arrived in China. I was working for a, a US-based architecture company and I stumbled upon an opportunity that I, at the time, I felt like it was a very interesting opportunity, which was manufacturing bespoke furniture on an individual level. So I actually was a retailer. I had a retail store on on a street in in Shanghai called Yongja, Yongja Road. And I was there for about a year and a half. And that's where where um, ASIC Design was born. And primarily what I was doing was creating furniture for customers that came in. And it was usually, I would say, a mixture of you know Western Western people and Chinese people. But after about a year and a half, I realized that retail is not my strength and that I wanted to go back into project work. The way I started that preceding you know, the furniture was interior design. At the time, I didn't do much interior design, but, but um, after I started doing it, I realized that it's actually pretty interesting compared to architecture because there are smaller projects and kind of design expression will... It'll become real much faster. Like they, they come to fruition very much faster. Like you can do a start and finish a project in say four or five months or, you know, sometimes buildings take years. And um, as ASIG design, at least my interior business started, um, we eventually ended up going down a specialized path of hospitality. And I think it really started with um, working with Starbucks. So Starbucks is one of my, currently one of my biggest customers, but um, historically I've done a lot of work with them doing some flagships and in, in high profile stores in China. But I ended up going down this path of, of restaurant and bar and hotels, things like this. And now that's, pri- that's the, the primary kind of driver of my business. And this is also why I've early on, I mentioned kind of the, the referencing, you know, F&B and, and hospitality and a lot of these projects that I do. And now at this point, I'm, I'm back in the U.S. About a quarter, a quarter of the time, I'm still in China. I'm, I'm back and forth and I'm managing my team from afar. And, you know, over the last two years now expanding into the U.S. market and um, I'm using my team of, of architects execute on some things, um, even though the projects are here in the West and it's, it's going, it's going really well. Nice. I want to get a little maybe granular on some of the design architecture talking about how you work on or how you approach plan design Chinese restaurants and coffee shops, how, and how they just 
in of themselves differ from restaurants and coffee shops in the West. You know, what you know are are kind of, you know, stick out like a sore thumb bit differences there. And then maybe juxtapose that with what about the clients that you could maybe work with from North America? Like, you know, not that you do, but franchises like the, you know, the the prominent KFCs or Starbucks of the world. Um, are you tied to would you be potentially tied to their standards? How much leeway do you have uh, to localize? How much should you be localizing? How much work do you have to do in encouraging and educating them that they do need to localize? And what are the headwinds on that? What does that look like? Maybe a little bit around that. So my my Chinese clients, um, they oftentimes, just like I spoke of earlier, are really driven by doing something totally new and amazing. They are actually okay with almost recreating their brand in a way, every single location that they put up. You know, I have medium-sized customers that say have 30 restaurants around China and every time they want to do something completely different and new from an, you know, an interior standpoint. Now, obviously they keep their logo and they keep their menu the same and their service and that feel of it. But the interior spaces oftentimes can greatly differ um, restaurant to restaurant. And that, again, of course, is driven by that desire to one-up their competitor who, for example, just opened a restaurant or a coffee shop, uh, oh, say, down the hall or in the next building over. So in, in the Chinese realm, it's really about starting with a process of re-looking at customer behavior, customer behavior, meaning who are the customers? You know, Shanghai is so big that neighborhoods even differ as far as what type of customers they have and what type of customers we know will go to these places. So if you want to get granular on, say, how I design a local Chinese restaurant, it's really about looking at its location and understanding, oh, this, this location is near offices. There's not too many people that live around here. We're going to have a big lunch crowd. Well, who's the lunch crowd? You know, what type of work do they do? What type of restaurant do they want? You know, if it's a, you know, like say a Lou Jazway, you would want something a little find a little bit more kind of, um, I wouldn't say luxury, but a little bit more upscale because they're the ones that are going to be going there for say business meetings at lunchtime. And therefore the space changes. That same brand could put one in Jading where the, the local people in that area that will go to that restaurant, they're going to be near their home. So they're going to be going more in the evening and you know that type of clientele for example they like to meet in big groups and they like more privacy so then the actual floor plan would then change it would be less of an open floor plan and more of a closed floor plan so there's a little bit more privacy in larger tables let's say like six to eight top tables versus you know just say two or four um, that's just one example of granularly how we would design a local restaurant and then the second part of your question was now how does this relate to say Western brands and Western brands coming in. So as I mentioned earlier, Starbucks is one of my bigger customers right now. I do a lot of work with them and they're really evolving their design as a brand in the Chinese market right now. Just actually recently over the last year or so, they typically historically go in phases say every four or five years, they would have kind of a new style that would drive a lot of their rollout stores, which is you know all the stores that they open year after year. But recently, they're kind of letting it free flow a bit. And I think it's because, well, first of all, they want to stay in tune with local trends. 
but yet still keep their brand. So I would say to answer your question, I would say 10 years ago, if I were to design a Starbucks, you could say 80% of the kit of parts of a Starbucks would need to remain tight with what they historically have done, tight with their brand. Whereas the 20% as a designer, you can play with, you can localize. They really like to localize. So what's the local culture like if you're in, uh, I don't know, Chengdu? Like what's, what, does, what does it mean to be Chengdu or what does it need, mean to be Sichuan? But recently what they're doing is, is they're even letting go even more. Like how can we keep this brand, but let even more than 80% go and really drive what local market is after? And I think that has a lot to do with competition. So, you know, as a Western brand coming into China, there's actually a few different paths you could take, but those paths, at least I think the path to success in China, it actually changes year after year. Like I think the success path entering now in 2021 could actually be very different from what it was in 2016. Only five years later, the consumer base has changed so much that you might actually want to go a different route with how you design your space and how that kind of tells the story of your brand. I want to dive into some of the influences and the influencing of architecture in China. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the influences that you do borrow. Where are they coming from and what type of industry uh, are they coming from? Is it, you know, a Google office from Seattle? Uh, is it a uh, beer house from, uh, you know, Berlin? Um, and then, you know, where do you, where does that stop? Uh, as far as outside influence, and then it's really just about what should be uh, and what you know to be um, influential to the design from inside China. And then maybe you could talk a little bit about, is China influencing externally, outside of China, are we seeing any influences of Chinese design in the West or, you know, in Europe? Or if, you know, if they are, what are they? If not, why not? Will they? That kind of stuff. This is a really interesting question because I think it's all wrapped up together in more of a periodic timeline. <laughs> so to give you an example, when I first started my career in China, I worked for a a French slash local Chinese company. It was partially Chinese owned, partially French owned. I was the only non-Chinese person in the company. I remember my Chinese colleagues oftentimes flipping through books and actually choosing buildings that they wanted to design for the building they were designing and they would copy it. And as a Western educated architect, that's extremely unacceptable because it's copying, right? Their thought on it was, well, I'm not copying. I'm respecting the masters, <laughs> which, which is pretty comical if you think about it. But what's amazing is that was 15 years ago. What's happening now is completely opposite. I would say over the last 10 years or so, there was a lot of influence coming from the West. I think I mentioned this earlier uh, with social media, but like Pinterest. So Pinterest globally, big fat designers influences because, you know, really when you're designing and you need an idea or ideas, you go on the web and oftentimes Pinterest is your best place. In China, it has been like that. The last five years, you can go into a shopping mall and see examples of, you know, things that were designed that literally you can say, I saw that on that exact same thing on Pinterest at some point. 
So there was a lot of influences from Western projects in that sense. However, most recently, and I would say this is only even the last, say, two years, the entire playbook has flipped. And now, you know, Chinese projects are leading the way. Um, if you go on the web in Pinterest, even if you Google something, Google image search, amazing interior design, chances are half of those are going to be in China. And what's happened is, is the design companies, the, the, the designers in China are just getting really good. Like everyone's getting good. And it's, you know, I don't know what it is. It might be the 10,000 hour become an expert, you know, theory, but Chinese designers over the last 10 years have absolutely had a lot of experience and they're all getting really good and they no longer need to reference. In fact, now what they do is they, they, they pull it from within. They take concepts and they abstract them to a level that what comes out is something truly unique and different. And now other people are referencing that. So I think what's coming, maybe, maybe to go back to the five to 10 year in the future, I think what's going to happen is China is going to be regarded as the arguably say the best, like kind of the center of great design in the world. They're already becoming there for insiders, but I think side of the circle of design, we'll also start realizing this, that the best design and the new creative ideas, both are and interior design are coming from China, from local Chinese designers, in fact, as well. Yeah, I, I find that, broadly speaking, the creative space has really taken off in the last 10 years. And it, it, we could be talking about tech and innovation. We could be talking about music. We could be talking about uh, art. We could be talking about, you know, clothing and style. Once I think the shackles came off and they were allowed to kind of spread their wings mentally uh, and just kind of lean in on, you know, trusting some instincts and, and building some muscle memory and understanding design, but then being able to play and fail and, and kind of grow up. Now, I think we're starting to see the result of, of really kind of uh, relaxing of, of the culture on saying, you know what, we're okay with the arts. Right. We're okay with with design. Less pressure doesn't always have to be math and science. And and now they're starting to get good. I mean, isn't that the story in Japan in their manufacturing right. revolution? They they got really copying and then they just became innovative. It is. But, you know, it's it's really fascinating to kind of have that understanding to be seeing the growth. And it's 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 hard to keep up because especially when you're not on the ground, uh, are you planning to go back and be on the ground in China again once we can all travel? Absolutely. Since I moved back, I actually still spend about 25% of my time in China. So I quote unquote am based in the US, but I'm back and forth a lot. I haven't traveled there. COVID started, but I'm really heavily involved daily with it because I'm managing my clients and suppliers. But I'm typically there and I will continue to be there 5% of my. So you're right. I mean, it, it, it's so fast. And when I go back now, I typically spend about half my time just doing uh, market research. <laughs> my market research is really fun because it means going to coffee shops and getting great coffee you know, and drinking beers and seeing new bars and restaurants. Um, but it is market research because it's important to see all that's changing in that country. It's really changing fast. And as long as I want to continue a designer in China, I need to keep going there and I need to keep up on all that's changing because it's... It's a, it really is. They're, they're, China's getting really good at a lot of things. Well, 
IRS, you heard it here first. Those are legitimate write-offs. All those, all those beers and all those coffees. <laughs> um, the, that's that's all market research, folks. So uh, if you ever get any trouble, you just point it back to this podcast. Sounds um, good. As we wrap, <laughs> as we wrap it up. Would you mind maybe recommending one or two guests that uh, you'd like to hear on the show that you think might be uh, fun to listen to, maybe experts in a particular field around China? Yeah. So I have a friend that his name is Sam Michael, and he has been through a few different industries in China. He's currently in air purification. He's a, he's a part owner of a, of an air purification company based in the U.S. And he is what you would call Tong, like a true chain master. Uh, he has his master's degree in China, in spoken Chinese at a Chinese university. And he really understands China at a really deep level. Andrew, thanks very much for being on the show, my friend. It was great, great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Todd. I, I appreciate it. I had, I had fun. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.